For what do I have if I don't have you, Jesus? What in this life could mean anymore? You are my rock. You are my glory. Hi, and welcome to The Rock Podcast. In our study tonight, we're going to take a look at Nehemiah's heart of compassion for a people whose lives have been turned upside down. Let's join Pastor Ross now with a message entitled, The Burden of the Lord. Well, lots of news pieces uh, recently uh, about Hurricane Katrina because it is the 10-year anniversary. Hard to believe that happened 10 years ago. Uh, The storm that lasted a week. Um, that changed the Gulf uh, Coast uh, forever. And there is the picture of it making landfall. That was quite a storm. And uh, the devastation it left behind uh, is evidenced right there, that great picture. I think sometimes we forget that a million homes were destroyed. One million homes. Uh, 135 billion with a B, you know, that number is just so huge, we can't even understand uh, the cost and the damage. A thousand people lost uh, their lives. Did you know that, that uh, the population of New Orleans uh, was halved as a result? Half of the people uh, after the storm uh, now live in, uh, I, th- I believe it's built up uh, a bit, but uh, still, it's not like it used to be. And so there was uh, 10 years, there has been, of rebuilding effort, you know, the homes, the businesses, and the lives. Can you imagine uh, a long and costly uh, project? There's a relief agency called AmeriCorps that had a slide uh, presentation, and I went online and just took some of the pictures. And here are the, the courageous young people uh, who uh, was a, were a part of uh, some of that effort there, and they got going. I can't even imagine, you know, the devastation. When you first arrive, you know, there's some pictures here. Um, you know, the work. I mean, where, where do you start? I mean, you, 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 just everything needed to be gutted. I mean, house and business after. I mean, just uh, that is nothing compared to some of the pictures that I saw of the just piles of rubble, uh, taller than the houses, the garbage heaps. It just looked like one gigantic garbage dump and landfill. And so I believe that's a, yeah, so from going from uh, utter ruin to new homes. And, uh, you know, just that, that just does your heart good to see that. But, you know, the, the cost of all that, thank you for those slides, uh, in time and trouble, man, I, I really can't even imagine. Well, you know, remembering Katrina and the efforts to rebuild are really a, a good lead-in for the story of Nehemiah. Nehemiah, of course, is going to head up the project to rebuild uh, Jerusalem and specifically uh, the, that all-important wall that protected that city and made that city really what it was. It was Operation Rebuild Jerusalem. The place was left a total wreck, just a a mass of rubble. 
the cause, it was a storm, but it wasn't a Category 5 hurricane. It was a Category 10 judgment of God upon really his own people, a storm that had been brewing 700 years, the great patience of God. Uh, you'll recall, let's talk about how the disaster came about, get a little uh, context and foundation, and we'll dive in. Uh, how did the disaster, how did Jerusalem, God's promised land, Solomon's glorious temple, the walls, everything about that place was blessed by God. How did it all get wiped out? It looked like a, a, a tornado had come in and leveled the place. Well, uh, let me say this. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, as we've heard before, uh, the Lord, um, when he settled them, when he busted them out of Egypt and brought them to this beautiful land, it was for, formerly called Canaan, and uh, he said, listen, Deuteronomy 4 records it. He said, uh, in the future, when you have grandchildren and you've lived a long time in the land, don't corrupt yourselves by making idols. I'm just quoting Deuteronomy uh, 4. This would be evil in the sight of the Lord and you would provoke his anger. Uh, then he says, first person, God speaking. Today I call on heaven and earth as witnesses against you. If you break my covenant, you will quickly disappear from the land you are crossing the Jordan to occupy. You will live there only a short time. Then you will be utterly destroyed, for the Lord uh, will scatter you among the nations. Ah, there it is. Where only a few of you uh, will survive. And so... Let's just do a quick chronology. I, I'll put it up for you. You can follow along. I just like it myself uh, to have something to follow along because that's going to go from the beginning of the promised land straight down to building of the wall, which is, by the way, the end of the Old Testament. Uh, the last voice you hear really is Nehemiah telling you the story about the building of the wall. Half of Nehemiah 1 through 6 is the building of the, of the wall. And that rest of the chapter, 7 through 13, are on the re revitalization of their spiritual life. That's it. The next voice is not Malachi. Malachi's been preaching with Ezra about 13 years before this. The next voice is John the Baptist. So we're right up against a new dispensation called the New uh, Testament. So you'll, you'll recall... If you like taking notes and you like history, it's 1400 BC. Uh, they're out of Egypt and, and brought to the uh, promised land. Uh, so after 400 years of slavery, he promised Abraham, there's going to be 400 years, you're going to be in Egypt, but I'm going to bring you back to this land. And he did that, right? And so 700 years from Moses to Joshua, the judges came. You know, remember Barak and Deborah, and you had... Gideon and Samson and Samuel ended up that period. And then you went to the kings and you had Saul, whoops, a bad king. <laughs> and then we went to King David and Solomon and 18 kings, right? And there was a split in the kingdom and you had two countries now. You had Israel, the, the northern tent, and you had Judah at the making up two uh, tribes in the south, right? And so what happened was in 722 um, BC, there was the first wave of that hurricane of God's judgment came in, and it's called the Assyrian exile. 
All that means is the Assyrians who made up Turkey, a little bit of Jordan, uh, a little bit of northern Iraq, uh, those people there, they came in and they took the northern 10 tribes away. So now Israel's gone, 722, all right? So now we got about 136 years left in the south because Jerusalem had some kings that were good, eight of the 20. And so they bought 135 extra years and then, you know, they went south. And so the second and final wave of Operation Diaspora is the theological term. Diaspora means diaspora. It's a theological term that just means the non-voluntary dispersal of people from their country, all right? And so that's what came. In promise to Deuteronomy 4, he said, listen, if you forget about this, you start acting like the Canaanites. I expelled the Canaanites for all of this behavior. If you guys start doing it, I'll expel you too. But Jeremiah 29, verse 10, for 70 years. Then I'll bring you back. So the 70 years happened. God told them ahead of time. Uh, King Cyrus is head of Persia, and, and he gets a soft heart for the Jews. And suddenly, after 70 years, just like Jeremiah said it would be, he says, you know what, Jews, you can go home. Well, only 2% ends up going. 2%. Everybody else, they're born there. It's been 70 years. It's been 150 years to, to Nehemiah. So people have jobs and lives and languages and culture, and, and they're like, we love Israel, but we, you know, it costs money, and, you know, 2% go back. And uh, that's 50,000 Jews return, and um, they, get, uh, they can't rebuild. They're having troubles. So, so now with Ezra and Zerubbabel, they're rebuilding the temple, they can kind of have worship services, but they had the wall almost in place and it came tumbling down again because the king of Persia is saying, hey, yo, you can go back, but don't get any ideas. They're not going to build the wall again, you know, and start giving us trouble. Well, all of that changed when the king had a beauty contest and he picked Miss Persia and we come to find out and he married her. And she's a Jew named Esther. So now the queen is a Jew. And her cousin has been promoted to prime minister. So the guy's right-hand man is a Jew. And the king's right-hand gal, his wife, is a Jew. So now suddenly things are looking up for the Jewish people. And so 13 years after Ezra... Is spinning his wheels, trying to make it happen. You know, it would be kind of like people going back to New Orleans and saying, hey, we're back. You know, the, 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 the Baptist church in the corner, we can do that. You know, everything else, garbage piled everywhere. Nothing else working, but we do have the Baptist church at the corner. Praise the Lord for that, you know. And there are like three houses that are, don't have garbage around it and rubble and rocks, right? So, so that's what's going on here, you know? So they're gonna need a little help. And this is where we start to look uh, to Nehemiah, who's working in the palace. And, you know, it gets tricky, but some commentators say, it's Artaxerxes. 
it's, it's Esther's husband. And Esther is sitting on a throne next to him when Nehemiah is going to ask permission. So this is the same palace that we have been studying, or so it appears. It's really hard because Artaxerxes is kind of not a name. It's a title. And so there, a lot of people are called Artaxerxes. But, it, it, you know, if you do the math, it looks good. All right, And it makes sense with the scriptures, and uh, that's where we're headed now. So 13 years have passed since Ezra's been out. They're having the worship church, worship services at the corner on that, you know, First Baptist Church there, picture in your mind. Only it's in Jerusalem, but things are still a mess as we're about to see one through four. The words of Nehemiah, who's writing this book? Thank you. It wasn't a trick question. <laughs> this, this time. All right. Some people will say maybe it's Ezra because in, he, in the Hebrew um, Bible, Ezra and Nehemiah are one book. All right. So they're saying Ezra definitely wrote Ezra and maybe he kept writing and just took Nehemiah's journal and just put it into his writing. Uh, they're split half and half. You know what? Guess who wrote Nehemiah? The Holy Spirit. So there we have it. <laughs> the words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. <laughs> in the month of Kislev, November slash December. You know, it's lunar, so it's not clean months like ours, all right? November, December, winter time. While I was in the capital, fortress of Susa, capital of Persia, Iran, southwest, 100 miles north of the Persian Gulf. Hanani, God is gracious. One of my brothers, brother to, to Nehemiah, came from Judah with some other men. And I questioned them about the Jewish remnant, the leftovers there, the 2% that survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province, the city. They're in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem's broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Well, we're gonna hear that that was for four months. So it was a pretty serious uh, endeavor. Let's talk about this. So uh, the first point here is going to be a, a burden. And the next uh, portion of the chapter, really from 5 to 11, is a prayer. And because I'm going to give so much background information, that's as far as we get, though there is a third point. The plan starts to come into practice after, uh, in, into uh, reality, chapter 2, 1 through 8. So if you're taking notes, a burden, uh, prayer, and then the action, the plan, all right? I, and, and so... This great accomplishment that's before us, the repair of the wall, the rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem, begins because somebody cared. Somebody just cared about something that God cares about. That's the basis for all greatness in life, is that you're consumed with doing God's will and what breaks God's heart breaks yours and motivates you to be a co-laborer, a co-builder with God and God's kingdom, 
you see. And so there are great lessons here. We're going to just start with right away that the, the number one lesson of Nehemiah is caring about what God cares about. Uh, here's a quote from George Bernard Shaw. Uh, he put it in the mouth of one of his lead characters on one of his plays. And it says, the worst sin toward fellow creatures is not to hate them, but to be indifferent toward them. For that is the essence of hum inhumanity. Yeah, so uh, sometimes the reason why people don't do much for God is because they don't care about what God cares about. They care for things that they're concerned about. Um, and so uh, here in Jerusalem, mounds and mounds of rubble, you know, things are just not pretty. People are demoralized, you know, uh, vulnerable. You, we don't understand what it means not to have a, a wall that protected the city, that defined who they were, that, that just kind of made everything work. I mean, how would you like to invite somebody over to see your city, you know? And it's a garbage dump. It's a landfill, you know? Oh, oh, this is the city of God. The whole testament is the glorious city where the most high dwells. And it's a garbage heap. The garbage dump. He says they're disgraced. There's no protection. They're oppressed. They get up this farm, it comes down again. And so no joy, no peace, no productivity uh, until one guy just started caring. He just cared. He heard something and he cared. It's like, ah, ah, grabs his heart. What are the lessons here? Just I'm going to just tell you why you need to pay attention tonight. You know, don't check out. Don't just think, you know what? <laughs> this is a history lesson. It happened so long ago. Oh, contraire. <laughs> As I said in that prayer, oh, the New Testament says, these things, and he means the Old Testament, were written on our behalf to teach us by example. They're painting pictures of Christ and the, the roots of salvation and, 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 and where we're headed in heaven and all of this stuff is for us today. What's the lesson, really? What's in it for me? You're Nehemiah. I'm Nehemiah. We're called to build. We are called a building of God and we are called builders, co-laborers with Christ. And the world has got big breaches in its walls. People in this room are hurting because they've been brokenhearted. They need to be, listen, strengthened. They need some care. They, they're missing a few bricks, all right? I didn't mean it like that. <laughs> I meant the wall is falling and they had, yeah, troubles there. <laughs> no comment. Hurting friends and family. There are lives that are kind of in shambles. We live in a fallen world. There are people who are demoralized and hurting. There are holes in this church. Are you kidding me? The devil just wants to, what is his job? You know, we build up, look at the wall, look at that. Hey, I'm making progress for the kingdom of God. Boom, you know, and then there's, you know, it's down again. And, and what we are called care about any kind of breakage or, 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 or kind of uh, a gap in somebody's 
faith in their life. We're supposed to be caring where our brother's keepers. We're Nehemiah. We're supposed to be caring. Look, there's a, there's a wall there. There's a wall that's come down. Brother, let me help you. Let me, let me care. Let me lead. Let me get others involved. Let's come around. Nehemiah's name is God brings comfort. That's what we're supposed to be doing. You know, God is building in us and through us. Nehemiah is a call to build with God. Jesus said, you're either building with me or you're scattering. Oh, don't just say, I don't do much here and I don't, I'm not doing anything wrong. He's saying, if you're not helping me build, period, you're scattering. You're part of the problem. Don't be part of the problem. Be a Nehemiah. And step one, the Nehemiah, is listen, care about something outside of your world. He's 800 miles from Jerusalem. His parents and probably their parents were born in Persia, in Iran. Do they, does he? Well, yes, he speaks Hebrew. They, they were good about that, keeping it in the home. Why should he care? I mean, it's a long ways away. He's two generations at least there in Iran. But he has a heart for what God cares about. And so it starts with an interest and he's asking some questions. And you know, you can just, it's not like, hey, how's it going? You know how we say that. How's it going? It's just like, good. Okay, yeah, I didn't really care. It's just what we say, right? How you doing? Fine. Uh, Well, how do I know that's true? Because if somebody actually answers the real honest truth, well, actually, since you asked, you know, I know that I got this problem and this problem. And you're like, whoa. I didn't really ask you. I was, just, I was just greeting you. All right. Well, that's not what's happening here. He's like, he needs to know. And his brother Hanani comes back short for Hananiah. God is gracious, as I told you. you know, so he said, how are God's people, the 2%, our beloved Jerusalem, 800 times mentioned in the Bible? How many times in the Quran? Zero. What? I thought there was this big clan, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Oh, no. Not mentioned once. But for the Jew, in Hebrew scriptures, 800 times. Just saying. Just pointing out a couple things here. A love for Jerusalem is knit into every Jewish Heart, especially the believing Jews. And, and, and Abraham's, Abraham has biological children, right? And he has spiritual children. And the Christian Gentile is a spiritual child of Abraham. And, you, you know, Christians love Jerusalem more than biological unbelieving Jews love Jerusalem. Amen? There's just something about it. Hello, I'm going to need more interaction. I'm just going to be honest with you. All right, I'm just going to need, I'm getting excited. I just need like, you're getting excited too and you're not thinking about going to bed, all right? <laughs> Let me tell you what, <laughs> Jerusalem, Jerusalem, here's this guy, he says, I want to know what's going on with Jerusalem. Isaiah 49, he had written, Isaiah was out, published this time. Isaiah 49 says that Israel is God's light to the world. So how's the light of the world doing? And he says, man, it's 
grace, not good. Jerusalem, that thing, man, I'm telling you what, I've asked Barb, you know, if it weren't for this, I'd, I'd want to live there. I just have, I have a little bit of that, you know. I have a little bit of that biologically. I have a little bit of that spiritually. And when I'm there, I just, oh, there's just something about it. We, we're on a tour bus. If you come with us in May, it'll happen again. We'll come up over a hill and you'll lay eyes on Jerusalem for the very first time in your life. You'll see the Mount of Olives. You just know the wall you recognize everything, and, and the, our tour guide was playing John Starn's old-time gospel, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. It kind of builds, you know, like the old-time gospel starts soft, and then suddenly, and he says, there's Jerusalem. <sighs> my Lord and my Savior was there. He was crucified there, dead, buried, raised, ascended. Oh, man, there's no place like that. You, you know, with the Jews, and that's why I'm taking my time here. Listen, uh, they sing songs about Jerusalem all through the Psalms. Uh, the, the Psalm that we read uh, in the opening, prayers are commanded for Jerusalem. Psalm 122. How about this? Did you know at Jewish weddings, you all know that, you know, the glass gets turned down and stopped on. Do you know why? It's to commemorate the destruction of Jerusalem. And then they say, after the stepping of the glass, they say, how can I forget you, O Jerusalem? I do consider you my highest joy from the song that we read. They don't want to get married without talking about the destruction of oh, Jerusalem. See, so we got this Jew living in 100 miles north of the Persian Gulf. He wants to know what's up. It was my great-great-grandfather's land. What's up? But he reads the scriptures. He knows how important that is. Passover dinner to the Jew, the Seder. Seder, Seder the word Seder means order. And, and there are 15 steps that you're to follow for the Jewish rabbis say 15 steps and at the last thing you say at a passover meal is next year in jerusalem well it's a big deal it's a big deal so that's what's going on nehemiah becomes great does great things because he cares about what god cares about and part of that is god's witness and reputation and his people that are over in jerusalem so by the way the caring that was instilled in Nehemiah uh, comes from a believing family. His father, Hakaliah. Hakaliah is waiting for the Lord. So Hakaliah's daddy and mommy named their son waiting for the Lord. And waiting for the Lord named his son God is comfort. And named his brother God is gracious. So mom and dad in the midst of Persia, in the midst of an unholy, godless, anti-Semitic place, these boys grow up with a love of what God loves. Good job, Hakaliah and Mrs. Hakaliah. You've done good. And Hakaliah's father, 
wasn't like raising them in Colorado Springs where it's this church on every corner for crying out loud. Sorry, no offense if you come from there. I don't mean any offense. I'm just saying, you know what? Raising somebody on like a lot, the strip in Las Vegas, all right, is a little bit different than the Bible Belt, all right? And they weren't in the Bible Belt. And so praise the Lord for that. So Nehemiah's bio brother, Hanani, he makes an 800-mile trip. We don't know why. Maybe because they're in cahoots together. Go check this place out, man. And he comes back in November, December, 446. That date, very important, because it's the date given by Daniel. Daniel says, you want to know when Messiah will come? You want to know about the end of the world? It's start your clocks ticking when the king says, go build, rebuild Jerusalem. That date is 445 BC. Bingo. I mean, they got this date down. I mean, wherever, whichever commentary I'm in, 445. They know the month. You can count from Daniel's prophecy. You can count all the way, something like 483 years. Boom. To the day. Jesus coming up over the Mount of Olives on Palm Sunday, declaring himself really the fulfillment of of prophecies in Zechariah 14, that the king comes riding in on the colt, a donkey. You see, right to the day, and then he gets cut off. A week before he gets cut off, just like Daniel said. So it's an important date. So the dates are given here because we're we're supposed to piece them together and be encouraged by it. So... Nehemiah tells bro, listen, and, and, and Nehemiah, is he a pastor? He's not a pastor. He's got a secular job. He works in the palace. We're going to find out he's a cupbearer, and we're going to find out what that means. But he's got a cush job. And so what does the brother say? The survivors, uh, probably mostly the children and grandchildren who were born in Turkey, Iraq, Iran, uh, who journeyed back to 2%, plus those who, the, the lineage that never really got deported, they're all together and lumped into that as survivors. The question is, okay, bro, it's been 100 years since the storm. So it's 100, almost 80, 100 years since the walls came down. He says, tell me, tell me something good, man. And Hanani gets the look of death. And he says, they're under great pressure, big trouble. They're living in disgrace, piles of rubber, rubber, <laughs> rubble. You know, and just, I have glasses right here. But why use them? <laughs> uh, walls are broken down. Cedar gates are, are just charred remains. And so it seems in Esther 4, you know, it, this is not big news. Why is this big news to him? It's been like that 100 years. Big news is Ezra 4. Ezra comes before this, 13 years. Ezra's trying to get something going. And the walls were kind of getting there. The gates were coming, coming together. And boom, came down. Ezra 4 is before Esther. E- Esther happens between Ezra 6 and 7. So now it's flat again. And those beautiful doors that were kind of getting in place, they're burned to the ground. And that is why the double whammy of him just saying, Oh, man, because, you know, the occupiers, they're like, oh, no, you don't. Oh, no, you don't. We see what you're doing. 
and they leveled it again. Now the news really gets to him, his heart is stirred. You know, it's easy to feel a little sad, say a little prayer, and go on with your life when you hear bad news, you know? Uh, so we learn he's a cupbearer, he's a great man of influence in the king's palace. We'll talk about that more. So Nehemiah is, verse 11, he comes out with it. He says, I'm the wine steward for the king Artaxerxes. Now, the wine steward's job is to taste the wine and make sure it's not poisoned, right? How would you like that job? <laughs> you know? Well, I'd be watching that barrel real closely, right? And so it, not just that. There were qualifications, as you could imagine. Loyalty, fidelity, uh, integrity. This, this guy, the king's... Like, everybody who worked near the king had to be like the smartest guy in Persia, right? Like Daniel, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. They all kind of had the same thing happen with them only 100 years before that. So, um, so he's got this job to do. I like the qualifications. Number one was he had to be handsome. Isn't that funny? The, the king didn't have any uh, desire to be around unattractive or problematic people. That's another important thing. No show of personal problems or depression or sadness. You are in there to entertain and to give the wine and to consult He's a consultant, so they're friends, right? So this is a really uh, important uh, position where he's considered uh, trustworthy. So um, he's successful, he's secure. Come on, man. You really gonna leave this cush life, your comfort zone? And you get all disturbed about something? 800 miles, what are you gonna do? Been like that for 100 years. I'll make a difference. Oh, yeah, he didn't think like that. What about this thing? You know, you can start getting guilty in church because you hear about all these Bible heroes with this big burden and fastings and prayers, and then, boom, he goes and does a miraculous thing, and you're like, what do I, who am I? What do I do, you know? But find the burden that God wants you to go after. We didn't have missionaries for a long time. And we started to get pressured. Where are the missionaries? I was asking the same question of the Lord. It's a big planet. I, I just could spin the globe and go, boom, let's support them, right? We, as a staff, decided let God stir our hearts. He'll bring somebody to the congregation. He'll, something will happen. We will know God is in this. God wants us to pour resources into this because if you leave it to me, I could start. I mean, there's need everywhere. How do you know who you're supposed to share the gospel with? Everybody in Santa Rosa, everybody I'm passing looks like they need the gospel. Who am I supposed to talk to, you, you know? And, and what missionaries are we supposed to support? And all of this, which issue, which church ministry? There's so much that could be done and then everybody gets overwhelmed. There's too much to choose from. What do I know? Listen, ask God. Grab my heart about something. Uh, he didn't grab your heart about rebuilding Jerusalem's walls. So you don't have to feel guilty about it. He didn't grab your heart to start a church and be a pastor or an evangelist. He didn't do that. He, he got me. He got me. I mean, I know, I know the day. 
I, I'm afraid to tell the story because I, I'll cry like a baby in front of you. But I'm going to try. <laughs> I was freshly saved, you know, still like this, coming out of the disco of all places where I got saved, you know, trying to stay alive, to stay alive. I was, <laughs> I was dying, staying alive, staying alive. And then God made me alive, finally. And then I stopped da disco dancing, so I couldn't even say, yeah, whatever. <laughs> And so, I had, my heart was burning to talk about Jesus. I didn't even know what to say, really. I had never been to church, you know, so I was starting to get a little bit of information, you know, and I just knew, well, there are people lost. They're, they're going to go to hell. You know what? I, we need to tell right? And so that started to get hold of me. And so I got in the car and I, got, I bought a whole stack of Bibles and I drove up to the city. And I got out of the car. I got goosebumps right now. I'm, I'm 20 years old, 19. And I'm passing out Bibles. Jesus loves you. There's a God in heaven. Don't go to hell. Here it is. I can help you. I got one verse, John 3, 16. <laughs> I got rid of all the Bibles. I go back in my car and I'm just like, oh, oh, oh. and I, I go, I don't even have a place to live. I'm sleeping on my father and mother's couch in Santa Cruz. Because I just got out of the city and got saved and filled with the Holy Spirit. I was like, Bruh. so I got, did you get that? <laughs> I, know. I know you get that because I've talked to you before. You're like that. <laughs> and so uh, I go into my dad's hotel. I saw my dad. <laughs> I went running into his arms. Just said, I found out why I'm here. I know what I'm supposed to be doing. God just saved me. Struck me with lightning out of a bar. And I'm supposed to tell people about the Lord. <laughs> My dad and I didn't have a good relationship, but he cried, hugged me. Such a nice memory. <laughs> I told you I was going to do this. <laughs> Oh, I can't believe it. Give me some tissues. <laughs> oh, well. All right. I feel better now. You know what, ladies? Now I understand. Sometimes you just need a good cry. <laughs> oh. What was it? Five months later? Was it Bible college? Five months later, and I never stopped, you know. You got that. You got that. And you're thinking, where is that? It's there. Why would he call He calls you. He gives you. There's something that you do that I can't do. I cannot do what you do. You're thinking, well, I can't do it. Yeah, you don't want to do this. <laughs> you want to do what you can do. And I look at what you do, and I believe it or not, I trust me. I think it's awesome. We, we come together as a body, you know. So I told you we could only get to the prayer tonight. <laughs> and so, yeah, no ordinary sadness grips this guy. It's a burden. And it's a burden that directs Nehemiah to what God wants Nehemiah to do. So he's going to respond now in verse 4. He sits himself down. They had little morning stools, and it was low to the ground. 
And so he sat himself down there and spent a considerable time for four months or so in and out of his duties, right? And so he's fasting, not the whole time of four months, obviously, but he's taking this pretty serious. Now, he's got tears. Now, oftentimes, you know, when a guy cries, I mean, it's got to go straight to the core of this is... You know, like a family member dies or you're talking about the call of God on a guy's life or something like that. Or, you know, his dog dies, you know, a guy will cry. If his truck gives up the ghost, you know, he'll cry, you know. And this thing moves him. I don't have a truck and I don't care if my truck died. But, you know, if my Honda Civic died, I'd probably laugh. So one writer put it this way. Uh, unusual grabbing of one's heart that evokes tears, loss of appetite. Whenever you fast, you know it's serious. Come on. When the food goes away, there's something serious going on. Amen? Amen? So the food went away. It's a good sign that God is calling and has something for you to do. Now, I love this comment. Let me read it to you kind of to bring balance to the very spiritual talk that we're having. If everything we needed to do for the Lord necessitated great burdens, tears, fasting, and intense praying, we'd all be in a world of hurt. Our Christian duties are often done faithfully and obediently without much fanfare emotionally or even spiritually but because they are the revealed will of God and we are his co-workers bent on being about the Father's business. Did you get that? So James will put it really good and nice and easy for you. You see somebody in need? Brother and sister? They don't have daily necessities? Do something about it. (laughs) You don't need to, oh, is it my gifting? Is it my calling? Do I feel anything here? None of that. There are... I would say most duties in the Christian life just need to be seen, understood, and done with or without the feelings, with or without the let me pray about it. You know what, folks? Can can we be honest? A lot of times when you say, well, let me pray about it, it's a polite way of saying no. (laughs) Sometimes, sometimes. Did you hear that? One more time for the emails. Those of you who are getting ready to email me. Sometimes only. I didn't say every time, okay? Did you get that? All right. And so, yeah, I like that. Weepings and fastings and seekings are good because a special call, something significant to do, but daily obedience is good too. All right, amen. Amen. Let's look at his prayer. And it it really breaks down pretty easy and uh, we'll be done. Five through 11, here comes the prayer. Then I said, and apparently it's the culmination of four months because he's about to step foot into the king's presence to ask permission to set out on a plan. Here's the prayer. Then I said, oh Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love, with those who love him and obey his commands. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. 
people. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We, myself, my father's house, committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We've not obeyed the commands, decrees, laws you gave Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your, your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But you did say, if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling place for my name. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of, your, of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. Who? Who? What man? I was a cupbearer to the king. Ah, so he's getting ready to go into the throne room. This is the culmination of all of his praying. So we saw the burden uh, that was sparked by caring for what God cares about and which led to a great prayer that's filled with a lot of insight, especially helpful, this prayer. There are 12 prayers in the book of Nehemiah. 12 prayers. One of the sub-themes of Nehemiah's prayer, leadership, ministering, those are our sub-themes. And so the first of 12 prayers uh, prayers for various occasions and needs. This one's pretty helpful. If you've got a big endeavor, a new beginning, you've got to repair, you're going to fix a big mess or a disaster uh, that was of your own doing. So keep this prayer in your back pocket, unfortunately, if you need that for yourself or for somebody uh, you know or situation that comes near you. That doesn't necessarily mean it's your disaster. Uh, so three takeaways from the prayer. Divides quite nicely. Um, and here's the spiritual application. Number one, verse five would say, because God is love, we pray in hope. Because we fall short, we humbly confess our sins. Verse six and seven. And then the last part, eight through 11, because we believe, we pray in faith God's promises. So let's just look at that. So number one, actually verse five, because of God's love, we can pray with hope. So here's a paraphrase. Oh Lord, God of heaven, you're great and awesome. You've made some promises to us. The foundation of those promises is love. Uh, that's what, you know, that's why he wants to pray. He wants to pray and he believes that there's hope because why? He knows who God is. He knows a little bit of God's nature and God's nature is love. God is, by nature, somebody who loves second chances. So he's going to have confidence in praying this impossible prayer about going to do this impossible thing because he can rely on God's love. You know, I like that. First uh, John chapter 5 says that we, we know and we rely on God's love. Now, it was such a mess to clean up. If you're starting over, you've got a, a life in shambles. Um, you might be tempted to just give up in the wake of all of that spiritual rubble. 
overwhelmed, but the fatalistic attitude, like I deserve this or he, she, she, they deserved it. And so, you know, what are we going to do? God did that. We tried to fix it. Ezra chapter four got shut down. Done. Oh, no, 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 no. Because he knows that God is a God of love, he's going to hit God up again. Oh, no, I know you to be a God who likes happy endings. You like to redeem things because of your love. You just can't help yourself. Mercy triumphs over judgment. I know, I know who you are. David, and David's psalms were around. Psalm 23, have you ever wondered why he said such a strange thing in Psalm 23? Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me? What, what does that mean? Have you ever stopped to, what does that mean? What do you, what is, what do, mercy and goodness are stalking me, behind me, following me. Well, uh, what are they going to catch me one day or what? No. Goodness and mercy is cleaning up the messes that I make. Everything behind me that I'm ashamed of, where I blew it, where I missed the mark. There's mercy and goodness. And he's taking those things and knitting them together for my good. That's mercy. It follows me. So that when I'm thinking about, did I really do that with Bathsheba? Did I really do that to her husband? There's mercy and goodness back there and it's following me. Well, how did it follow him there? The first baby born to that adulterous affair died in judgment. The second baby back there where goodness and mercy follows him was Solomon. What? Solomon, who's in the lineage of Christ Jesus, our Lord. So from the adulterous affair, goodness and mercy, that happened back there, goodness and mercy, knitting stuff together and saying, I'm from this adulterous union, I'm bringing the savior of the world into humanity. Through Bathsheba, the adulteress. She's listed in Matthew chapter 1 in the lineage to Jesus Christ, who is God the Son. If that is a mercy and goodness, stalking from behind, I don't know what is. Amen? <laughs> Moving on. Verses 6 through 7. Because we sin, we humbly confess. Now, Nehemiah, dude, it's been 100 years since God brought that judgment. What are you saying? Uh, what are you involving yourself and your father, Hakaliah, for? Because I'm not better, God, than anybody else. And my sins are just as awful. And I'm capable. And I'm a Jew. And I'm sharing the blame. So I get this, God. We're all, we've all missed the mark. That's what the word sin there means. We've all missed the mark. I'm asking for your mercy, not for them, the bad guys who, you know, actually I was born in Iran, okay? You know, sorry. <laughs> That's the voice I do sometimes. <laughs> actually, I wasn't there when it happened. So I'm praying for those guys. He's just going to own it. You will never fix any disaster in your life or anybody else's until you just humble yourself, see yourself as equally flawed, and confess your sins along with theirs. 
Oh, God comes in like a flood, like, oh, I like that. Well, you try to hold on to, you know what? <laughs> I am sorry if I. Don't ever say that to me, <laughs> please. You'll give me heartburn. This is not an apology. I'm sorry if I. I'm sorry because I. That's an apology, right? So it's not just them over there. And actually, you know, if I were them, I wouldn't have none of that. He's like, God, listen, I'm asking you to fix a problem with your people. Oh, and with me and my dad and my mom and Hanani and all of us. Nobody's feeling like, oh, we're up here. They're down there. Oh, God likes that. God liked it. Look what he did. <laughs> you know, so that's one of the answers there is, is to identify. Here's a, I, I practically said what this writer said, but let me read it. In the aftermath of spiritual failure or calamity, to try to hang on to bits of pride, to hold on to your version of the story, what went wrong from your point of view, to, to comfort yourself with an exaggerated view of your good motives and your redeeming qualities, is to hinder God from coming in like a flood and fixing and restoring everything. So the prayer culminates now, 8 through 11, really simple. Because we believe in God's promises, we pray with confidence and with faith. And so check out verse 8 that's staring right at you. So he's saying in prayer to God, remember when you said, God, you promised. Do you remember where you told us? <laughs> so he's, look, if you ever want confidence, repeat back the promises of God in your praying. Oh, my word, it's great. So verse 8, he's saying, now, you said if we rebel against you, you'd scatter us over the nations. Deuteronomy 28.64, check. You said that. I know you said it, so we, we get it. But you also said, verse 9, you said if we cried out and drew near to you that you'd regather us. And you know where you said that, God? Deuteronomy 30, 1 through 4. And then, no, he's not done. Verse 10, he says, and also, Lord, you called us, Hebrews, your servants and your people, and you said you redeemed us by your great power. And you know where you said that? Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 20, verse 29. Deuteronomy 9, 29. So here we are. You, you're the one, you're the one who said this. You called us your people. Your servants, you brought us back from slavery and death once before by your great power. We, we're just asking to see that again. That's all. And, and you did say, you know, you disobey. You're going to scatter us. You check. We got that. But you also said if we called upon your name and we fasted and prayed, you would bring us back. Remember you said that. Oh, that's the way to go. I know your word. I trust you. You know, listen. Don't do what some people do and strong arm God. You know, hey, you said this, so you're doing it. You know, I don't, I think if I were the Lord, the first thing I would want to do is, uh, no, I'm not. <laughs> right? Come on. You don't have to claim it. You could just say, hey, Lord, uh, you know, you said that every temptation that comes, um, you will give me the strength with the temptation to bear up under it. 
So therefore, I pray about this particular situation. Boom. Yeah, that's it right there. You quote it to him. I know. You promised, Lord, that you'd never leave me or forsake me. So I thank you about this situation coming up. Dot, dot, dot. You said that when people who are right with you pray, productive and effective things, you are working, whether I see you or not. Therefore, Lord, in view of the truth of this promise, I pray, oh, Lord, you know, Sarah said, you know, she laughed when she heard what your plan was for her. So you told Abraham in Genesis 18 and verse 14, you said, God, to that unbelief, you said, hey, I'm the Lord. Is anything too difficult for me? So therefore, Lord, about this situation, I just pray, bam. That's what you do. It's right there. Pray the word, believe the word, and expect, you know? So what's to take away? Nehemiah 1, burden and prayer. Nehemiah gets a burden, and like Nehemiah, so should we, because we should care about what God cares about. And that burden stirs him to prayer. So what did we get out of the praying part? Well, here's what I got out. Because, because we are grieved, we pray soberly. Because of God's love, we pray in hope. Because um, we sin, we humbly confess. And because we believe God's promises, we pray with faith and expectation that he will do exactly as he has said. So the last words of chapter one, he says, so by the way, the man I, I, I uh, need favor with, oh yeah, uh, the king of the whole world, the king of Persia, I happen to be his Cup bearer. So here's what he's going to do. Get ready, because it's dramatic. He's going to tell us, and the suspense is going to build. So it's pretty much the death penalty to go in and bug the king out. You can't go in and just have a little cry fest like I did. Yeah, I would have been dead there. Oh, king, you remind me of my dad. <laughs> Off with your head, you know. So... On this particular day, he's going to tell us right now, so get ready. He's going to say, I couldn't help it. I had puffy eyes. I walked in dark circles. I looked away, but he looked at my face, and I saw the expression on his face, and the king raises his voice, and he says to Nehemiah, he says, Nehemiah, look at me. He says, are you sad? What in the world is going on with you? And Nehemiah's knees start shaking, and then all of a sudden, oh! Oh, don't you hate that? All right, let's pray together. <laughs> I guess you'll have to come back next Wednesday. Now, Heavenly Father, we thank you for a great chapter. Just get us started, Lord. A lot to talk about, but we're done with the foundation, so... We just thank you, Lord, for burden and prayers. May, we, may the truth of what you have for each person settle down deep in our hearts. In Christ's name, amen. Let's stand. Closing song. You have been listening to The Rock Podcast. Our regular services are held on Wednesday nights at 6.30 and Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. 
If you would like to learn more, please visit our website at calvarytherock.org.